Spy Talk, a podcast at the intersection of intelligence, foreign policy, national security, and military operations with Jeff Stein and Gene Meserve. Hi there, I'm Jeff Stein. And I'm Gene Meserve. Welcome to another episode of Spy Talk. That's the Kiev Symphony Orchestra and Chorus in a rendition of Precious Lord, Take My Hand. The Ukrainians are exhibiting incredible resilience in the wake of mass atrocities and missile strikes as they face a deadly new onslaught from Russian forces in the east in what's shaping up as the biggest tank battle since World War II. And now we're facing what many experts call a new Cold War with Moscow, one that could turn out to be as protracted, fearsome, and dirty as the one that consumes the two nuclear-armed superpowers for nearly 50 years after that war, and one which Moscow's KGB and GRU spy agencies never really gave up. One of the experts on that subject is the renowned investigative journalist Scott Anderson, author most recently of The Quiet Americans, which is subtitled Four CIA Spies at the Dawn of the Cold War, A Tragedy in Three Acts. I'll be back with his fascinating long view take in a bit, but first up, my co-host is looking into the technological revolution in satellite imagery, from the real-time tracking of the battle space in Ukraine to its vulnerability to manipulation by bad actors. Gene? Every day, we're seeing on our computers and televisions images of Russian convoys trekking through Ukraine, of smoldering ruins in Mariupol. A lot of it is satellite imagery, publicly shared in a way it never has been before. I spoke with Robert Cardillo, who worked for almost 40 years in geospatial intelligence for the federal government, including a stint as director of the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. During the Obama administration, he also delivered the summary of critical intelligence known as the presidential daily brief. I asked him how critical geospatial intelligence is to the conflict in Ukraine. Gene, I think we have never experienced uh, a conflict quite like this. You know, one can, if you're old enough, uh, like myself, if you can think back to the Vietnam War, how really the nature of the overall war changed when it moved into people's living rooms via the nightly news. And then then I can remember too, Wolf Blitzer sitting in Baghdad in uh, the early 90s and reporting on cruise missiles coming down the avenue on their way to Iraqi targets. That too changed the way people experience conflict. And now in Ukraine, We literally are watching from space through commercial companies with unclassified imagery and, you know, volunteer analysis. It's it's unlike anything we've seen before. Does the satellite imagery show us everything? Well, of course not. Of course not. Just as in life, every picture, every video, every optic doesn't show us everything. 
Um, yes, uh, it, it is limited, of course. But what what I what I really like about it is it provides a frame of reference. It's context. It's it's you know common awareness. Doesn't mean you're going to get to common agreement, okay, about that awareness. But it's a common view. You mentioned that some of the imagery we're looking at is from private industry. What exactly is the relationship between private industry and the intelligence community when it comes to geospatial imagery? Um, the answer to that question is is uh, covers about three decades. I will I will briefly summarize, Gene, uh, for you and the audience. Uh, under the Clinton administration, uh, the U.S. government, through a national security policy directive, stated that it's in our national interest that the United States have a not just a competitive, but a leading world commercial imagery industry. Uh, now, I wasn't present at that creation, but but I strongly believe that that policy came from the U.S. interest in 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 shared awareness, in common views, in that all things being equal, U.S. positions and U.S. interests are advanced when we can share that view. So over the over the next thirty years, through through some cycles of growth and 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 contraction. Uh, the U.S. commercial imagery industry is, again, and I'm a bit biased since I'm a, a participant in one of the companies, uh, is quite strong today. And it's strong be, be because of the relationship between, one, the government as the license provider, and we can talk more about that, but two, to your question, the partnership that has evolved between the, the industry and the U.S. intelligence community. And basically, it works as follows, that the U.S. government now buys or procures or acquires commercial imagery, unclassified, for its foundation work. Think maps, think charts, think broad uh, area awareness. And then the government does its own imaging, its own sensing in what I would call more exquisite areas, ones that are not commercially viable, but are of interest to our intelligence community. Give me an example. On which side? On the, on the exquisite. Sure. So uh, it, the audience will be well aware of the US interest in uh, nuclear related activities in all countries, but two in particular, North Korea and Iran. Because of a lack of trust and a lack of access, um, the U.S. government uses remote sensing in order to learn more about those activities. Yes, you can take pictures of North Korea using an unclassified image, but to your point, that will only tell you a small part of the story. If you want to know about activity and uh, I'll say sensitive signatures related to centrifuge uh, uh, operations, that you won't see in an optical image, that you would require a different part of the electromagnetic spectrum, and that would require something that only the government could create. I wanna talk about those different kinds of, of imagery that we can get, but first staying on the, on the private sector for just a moment. So you've developed this partnership. It has grown the capacity of the government. You are getting a heck of a lot of imagery, and so are they. Are you getting too much? Do you have the capacity to analyze all that data? 
Well, the answer is no. If we did the analysis the way you know young Robert Cardillo did it in the '80s, which meant putting a piece of film on a light table, looking through a microscope, and exploiting it, it is not humanly possible to do that today. That's where machines and algorithms and computer vision tools become uh, essential. So I like to the, the way I like to phrase it now is that the imaging that we're collecting today must be machine first, meaning let the computer help the analyst or the policymaker or the map maker understand if anything's changed. And then if anything's changed, does that change mean cross a threshold of meaning uh, uh, to to the person? And so so the short answer is is that if we if we use the machines and the algorithms and computer vision tools we can keep up with what would be an overwhelming uh, amount of information if we did it uh, the old-fashioned way do you ever worry that this interface between the government and industry is too porous um and that perhaps some imagery is escaping into the wild that you'd prefer not you know, I, I, Gene, I actually do believe that does happen. Um, you know, if I go back to the founding policy directive that came out of the White House, I want to believe that those thought leaders understood that, you know, the release of all of this imagery, the one, you know, we're talking about today, would bring with it some things that you didn't want exposed or illuminated or imaged. But, but, but I go back to my belief that in a, in a world that is becoming more and more transparent, democratic, lowercase d, principles of citizenry, uh, responsibility, individual liberty, and personal privacy, I think, I think we come out ahead in that trade, even if we do you know, expose things on the edges. Is there a risk um, that there are deep fakes or even not so deep fakes created and how do you how do you ensure that the imagery you're looking at is authentic it's more than a risk gene it's a reality and so you you must include in your calculus as you're using or or feeding or or you know applying your algorithm against an image set you should start with the question, has, has the pixel pedigree, so that's the smallest unit of measure with an image, has that pedigree been protected the entire chain from sensing to processing to communicating to storage to transmitting? You can think, think in your, you know, our, our normal lives with, you know, cybersecurity, there's so many vulnerabilities uh, to each of us in our daily lives. All those vulnerabilities occur here. I will say the imaging community probably came too late to that realization. You know, we I'll just speak for myself a little bit naive. Who would mess with an image, right? Nobody, nobody would bother an image. Everyone loves imagery and images. Well, of course, that's naive. Uh, if, if, if you had an ulterior motive, you would, you would happily transmit, you know, a bad pixel or insert code into the image that would end up being malware on your computer, or to your point, actually put out manipulated imagery that, that didn't exist, that is actually fake. 
So all of those things must be front and center as you engage with, with any imaging opportunity. You indicate that it's happened. Can you give an example? Gene, when I was uh, had the privilege of sitting in the chair of being responsible for the president's daily brief from 2010 to 14, we had an unfortunate tragedy in which a Malaysian airliner was shot down over Eastern Ukraine. Uh, this is in uh, the summer of 2014. And immediately when that plane went down, uh, people sought answers. What happened? Who's responsible? What are the consequences? And even though it took a Dutch court, I believe it was two years to determine that that attribution belonged to a Russian surface-to-air missile system that was used by separatist fighters engaged from the ground in eastern Ukraine and brought down the airliner in a court, in an international court, those first few days and weeks were quite confusing. Part of that confusion was because the Russians or Russian-sponsored media put out an image, in this case a fake image, of, a, of the airliner in flight. So imagine an image from space with a, with a commercial airliner in the picture and off of its rear right wing, about a mile behind, there was a, uh, a Ukrainian fighter. And even more, they put a contrail, so a smoke trail between the fighter and the plane to say, see, it was brought down by an air-to-air -air missile from the Ukrainian fighters. Now, it was quite straightforward for us in the US intelligence community to show that that was a faked image, but the damage had been done. It was in the media. It was in the uh, it was in the public discourse, and I would I would argue that it wasn't in the Russians' interest to win that argument to prove their case. They just wanted to sow confusion, to delay attribution and consequences. And so that's just one example of the kinds of ways that a, a fake or a false or a manipulated image can can hurt. How did it impact the president's daily brief? So. Um, two things. One, uh, I went in there thinking that uh, in some ways that the president was going to be impressed with our ability to identify said manipulation and kind of thought I was going to get an attaboy or, you know, uh, way to go and pat it on the head and uh, escort it out of the office. And, and to be clear, the president did express appreciation for that service. But then he said something that I wasn't ready for. He said, well, Robert, this is not the first image you've shown me in this briefing. It might be the 10th or the 11th, but we didn't go through all that pixel pedigree for those other 10 or 11 images. Mm -hmm. And my first reaction to that was, Mr. President, you can't ask me that. Now I kept that in my head because of course he can ask me anything I want, he, he would like to. But I was somewhat offended because the first 10 images were US government images, right? So I said, well, of course, these are true because we took them and we protected them and whatnot. But then I thought again, I said, well, no, 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 no. He should be asking that question about every image. And so I, that's what I said when I, I said we were a little late coming to the party or the acknowledgement of the risk to ourselves. And so it was a great lesson for me that uh, some nine years later, I hold with me uh, to this day. So essentially, you have to establish a chain of custody for the imaging. And I'm wondering how challenging that becomes 
when it isn't all within government control, when you have private actors as well. Exactly right. But I would just, I would, again, Gene, I would just remind, you know, that, that while it's relatively new for the imagery community, it isn't new, right, for financial security and email security and communication security. So I do think there's many lessons and best practices for us to take on here. But you're exactly right. Just because of all of the power, the, all of the positive power of an image, right, to compel, to inform, uh, to unify, that fake image or that manipulated image can have equally powerful damaging effects. So, so I'm, I'm saying yes and to your question. Yes, we need to learn all those lessons. And yes, we need to be better. We've been talking about optical imagery. There are different kinds of imagery collected by satellites. Talk a little bit about some of those, if you would. Sure. So, uh, you know, optical imagery is, um, is most common and it's most familiar because it's, it's how humans uh, sense the world with our eyes. Um, if you imagine the electromagnetic spectrum, you can move out of visible light to infrared. So uh, heat signatures, you can move into um, spectral, uh, meaning uh, smaller and smaller gradations of that spectrum to be more particular about what they're sensing. So uh, the health of a plant or a forest or the, the relative pollution of a river can be detected through those spectral bands. And then uh, further down the spectrum, you get to something called uh, synthetic aperture radar. Uh, the shorthand is SAR. And in SAR, that is different because everything I've just described, um, uh, whether it's optical, IR, or spectral, is reflective, meaning the sun creates the energy and the sensor collects the bounce of that energy off the object. In SAR, the machine, the entity, the satellite or the airplane creates the signal, a radar signal. It emanates it towards the target of interest and it collects the return of that energy. And so it's through those returns that measurements are made, uh, movement is detected, heights are measured, et cetera, et cetera. So think of it as a, oh, I'm, I was about to say fabricated and I went, oh no, that's gonna sound like it's false. Uh, a self-generated uh, image because you create the energy and then you, you measure the returns. So let's talk about the applications of each of these in the intelligence context. First, infrared. Um, so the, the, the heat. Um, um, it, it, it's one thing to know that there are six fighter aircraft uh, in a ready position at a runway or airport of interest, right? So you're in, involved in hostilities or you're worried about a preemptive attack. It's, a, it's quite a different thing to know that their engines are on because obviously when they're cold, they're not a, an immediate threat. Um, and so detecting that change. Um, another case for IR is a missile warning you know, to, to launch a metal object from our, from earth crates uh, requires a lot of energy. Uh, often our very first detection of that North Korean launch or, or even a Russian test or a Chinese test is from IR sensors in space, looking down for those energies. 
Spectral? Spectral is fascinating and, you know, it's almost endless in the application. I mentioned a couple earlier, whether it was plant health or, or, or water pollution, et cetera. But also think about um, um, effluence. So, uh, you know, think of a petrochemical plant, right, which would be refining, you know, crude oil into gasolines and and different forms of fuels uh, for various uh, consumption uses. Each of those steps would have a different spectral signature. And um, to know when it had moved, you know, the, the, the crude had moved from one form to another uh, would be detectable. Now from an intelligence pur purpose, uh, that's not all that useful. But now if I take you from a petrochemical refinement plant to a suspect or a known uh, nuclear centrifuge production plant, you can detect spectrally rates of operation, um, modes of operation, phases of operation to understand how enriched the uranium uh, would be become. And so in that case, that can be a, an indicator of, of threat. And SAR? As much as I love optical imagery, it doesn't work very well at night because the sun isn't hitting the target and uh, it doesn't work very well when there's a cloud in the way. And many places on this planet of interest are underneath clouds. North Korea is one. Uh, by the way, Ukraine is a generally pretty cloudy place. So uh, you, can, you can create images with SAR because again, you control the emission, you control the discharge of energy and it works at night and it works through clouds. So there's great interest these days in Russian tank movement and artillery positions and convoys. Those are large metal objects, which are quite friendly, friendly by uh, what I mean by that is they, they return uh, radar energy quite strongly. So they're, they're great examples, even within trees or tree line or undercover. Uh, radar can penetrate those. Are U.S. capacities good in all of those different realms, infrared, spectral, and SAR? They are. You know, I can't speak. Even that doesn't sound very convincing. <laughs> no, 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 no. They, they really are. I just, I just can't give you evidence of that because I still I have my obligations for, for protecting classified information. But I can give you, let me give you more confidently, Gene. They are quite capable. The area that I believe, I'm going to say we, and I mean public, private, government, industry, need to do better is spectral. Just because it, it, it is harder, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's literally hundreds and thousands of bands in there. And so it takes a great deal of science, a great deal of, you know, care. Um, it's quite difficult. And so um, as as confident as I am across the board in our capabilities, I think there's, there's much potential growth to be seen in the future in that spectral world. I would say along the way, Gene, let's also remember that as much as, you know, we've focused on security here today, the other thing that's fundamental to our way of life is that, that individual liberty and personal privacy. We are fast approaching a time in which the sensing that we're talking about 
could inhibit, if not invade, both. So perhaps a lesson we could learn from some unfortunate uh, experiences we've had on the communication security and email security that we've gone through as a society. You know, what can the government collect and how can it store it and who can see it and how can it be used, I think applies to imaging as well. And so my recommendation is let's have those debates and discussions about what's the line of access, storage, use now, before we have the, oh my gosh, you know, crisis kind of event that people are, you know, when we go to our corners, we don't have very good discussions. So I'm, I'm, I'm asking us, let's have it now before we have to uh, deal with in the crisis. Are those conversations taking place? They are, but, but, you know, not, not at the level I'd like to, I mean, look, there are cities making choices about, you know, facial recognition software, you know, some will use it, some won't use it. Um, there are issues with, uh, you know, deep fakes and, 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 and algorithms that will go into, you know, openly available internet traffic, take one image of you or I put together, you know, something that's fabricated based upon that. And they said, you know, all of a sudden there's some social media post where me saying something that I never said, but causes great damage, you know, you know, embarrassment at the low end to criminal at the high end. And, and, you know, how do you defend yourself? So I think they're too anecdotal right now, Gene, I, here's my worry. <laughs> the U S God bless us. We tend to push off those conversations until, you know, there is some crisis, you know, for, for signals intelligence, you know, it was Snowden, you know, in the releases and, and uh, I think, as you know, Gene, um, the rule in Washington is if you're explaining, you're losing. Meaning if you're, if you're coming out after the fact, explaining what happened and why it happened, it's very difficult. So I don't know. I, I, I want to be optimistic here. I'd like to think that we can take on this conversation before you know, we have to. I do worry it's going to take a crisis you know, or a you know, unforeseen event to, uh, to galvanize it. But uh, I'm going to do my part to try to elevate it and, and, and to try to have those conversations at higher levels now. Whose responsibility is it to convene those conversations? Look, I would love our Director of National Intelligence, Avril Haynes, to be part of that conversation. I would also like the Attorney General to be connected because let's face it, uh, you know, some people say, well, geez, I give Google all this information. Why don't I share it with the government? And I remind them, I says, well, the Google can't yet arrest you. Okay. <laughs> Google can't yet, you know, fine you for not paying your taxes or, or whatever. So it's a different equation when you talk about the control the government has. So I think it's some combination of our, of our, of our legal, you know, le leaders in justice uh, and our intelligence community leaders. And Congress? Sure, absolutely. I mean, they, and and actually, I think Congress, albeit five hundred and thirty-five, you know, relatively independent members, do have and have encouraged that conversation to occur. But you know, let's face it, Gene, it's it's hard for anything to get done collectively in Congress these days. So I, I do think it needs to be started from the administration side, and then of course, you would need congressional support. 
That was Robert Cardillo, now chairman of the board at Planet Federal. He was previously director of the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. Jeff? Well, Gene, I'm not much of a tech head, so I learned a lot from your dialogue with Mr. Cardillo. We're a long, long way for Sputnik, that's for sure. And he's shown how critical U.S. satellites are in helping Ukraine combat the Russians. And next week, in part two of our conversation, we discuss the U.S. decision to halt anti-satellite missile tests. And Cardillo will tell us more about delivering the presidential daily brief to President Obama, then Vice President Joe Biden, and also once to President Trump. Well, part one was so interesting that I'm, I'm really looking forward to hearing the second part. We hope you're loving Spy Talk and will leave us a great review. Also, subscribe to Spy Talk on Substack. Follow us on Twitter. I'm at Gene Meserve. Jeff is at Spy Talker. We'll be back in just a moment. Scott Anderson is one of our most accomplished foreign affairs journalists. As a longtime war correspondent, he's filed scores of magazine pieces ranging from Beirut to Northern Ireland, Chechnya, Israel, Sudan, Sarajevo, El Salvador, and a number of other conflict zones. He also wrote a breakthrough investigative piece on Vladimir Putin's 1999 false flag operation to blow up Moscow apartment buildings and blame it on the Chechens. Most recently, Anderson authored a history of the CIA's early and disastrous efforts to undermine the Soviet Union at the dawn of the Cold War in the 1940s and 1950s. So I thought he was the perfect person to chat about the dawn of yet another Cold War with Russia. Scott Anderson, welcome to Spy Talk. Just a thrill to have you here. In your wonderful magisterial book, the Quiet Americans, Four CIA Spies at the Dawn of the Cold War, a tragedy in three acts, you call it. Um, you describe uh, the first generation of CIA officers as sort of brimming with confidence that defeated the Nazis and were viscerally anti-communist, uh, which drove them into sort of disastrous often tragic campaigns to overthrow regimes suspected of being soft on communism or just in the way of American business interests. I suspect you've thought something somewhat about today's CIA leadership, which is engaging with Russia over Ukraine with a very different mindset and set of experiences. Right. Well, thanks. Thank you, Jeff. Thanks for having me. I, yes. In, in the quite Americans, I, I, I really kind of explore the early days of the Cold War. And, and in thinking about what's been happening in Ukraine and about the, the CIA's efforts to try to divine what's going on with Putin, um, I think you have to look at the Cold War in kind of, kind of two distinct periods. One was the, and it's the, it's the period I really focused on a lot in, in my book, um, was the whole period up to kind of the late 1950s. Um, and this is a period when the CIA really had no internal intelligence on what was happening inside the Kremlin. Um, that really only, they didn't have a, you know, a, a, a sub-minister in, you know, in, the, in the Ministry of Heavy Machinery. They had nobody. Um, and when you had a man like- Meaning a spy in a the spy, Soviet more, bureaucracy. Yeah. That's right, they had nobody. Um, and when you had a, a leader like Stalin, uh, who was running the show and who had uh, nuclear weapons, um, that's pretty horrifying that they really didn't have any sense of what 
Stalin was capable of or what he, what he might do next. That began to change in the early uh, in the early '60s with the U-2 spy plane, uh, with with greater sur uh, aerial surveillance, and with the more systematizing of the Kremlin leadership. Um, it was much easier for the agency to get a sense of what was really going on uh, uh, inside the Kremlin. I think what you have now with Putin is kind of a, a strange hybrid of of these two periods of the Cold War, in that we ob the Americans obviously have far more um, uh, signal intelligence of what's happening in, in, in Russia. Um, all the predictions that the, the Biden administration was making in the, in the run-up to, to the invasion of Ukraine of, of what the Russians were doing and, and why they were doing it was pretty astonishing. Uh, at the same time, I think with Putin, you're back to a guy very much like Stalin. Who, who is he actually listening to? Even if, even if the Americans do have moles or, or in, informants in the internal Kremlin leadership, I don't get much of a sense that, that anyone has a handle on who Putin might be listening to, if anybody. Uh, so much of this might be going on in, in the decisions being made might be going on inside Putin's head. And so intelligence just doesn't really work that well when you're in a situation like that. Well, uh, that, that's that's really an interesting insight that you make uh, in, in your book. So, um, you know, a, an ex-KGB senior official once told the CIA, ex-senior official, that the CIA had two stations in Moscow, uh, one in the U.S. Embassy and one inside the KGB. Um, I suspect with all the corruption in, uh, and self-dealing in Russia today that the CIA has probably been somewhat successful at penetrating the leadership. But as you say, it's very difficult to divine what's going on when the leader himself and the men who surround him don't seem to know what's going on. That's right. That's, I think that's the exact dilemma where, where the world's facing right now. Um, no doubt, you're right. That I think the coterie around Putin—it's—it's a—it's a pretty opportunistic group, and that kind of every man for himself. No doubt, a lot of them are talking to the Americans, to the British, to, to whoever wants to talk to them, promoting their own idea of what they think is going on. But do that any of them really know what's going on? That's mm -hmm. that is that is the the question. It, it, you know, uh, I feel in some ways what you see around Putin is it's, 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 a, it's, it's a bit like an organized crime family. Um, so you have a lot of these lieutenants who are, are loyal to the, to the men at the top, um, but also in it for themselves. Um, but how many actually really know what the Godfather uh, is going to do next or wants to do next? Um, mm -hmm. if, if, does the Godfather himself even? Well, the CIA, uh, the Biden administration has been pretty aggressive about putting out what it thinks about Putin and what his next moves are going to be and so on, forecasting uh, false flag operations, chemical warfare attacks and so on. This I, I was wondering if you thought this is part of a, a another replay of the mighty Wurlitzer, which you describe in wonderful detail in your book. That was the 1950s era. A propaganda machine that the CIA used to to get the messages of uh, pro-American, anti-communist, anti-Russian messages out around the world. I was thinking this morning as I was reading about 
uh, or seeing the, the publicizing of letters home from Russian soldiers in Ukraine. I was thinking, boy, if I were at CIA, I'd be writing some of those letters <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and making them public. Do you sense the, a kind of mighty war through propaganda is at work again today, this time versus Putin? To, uh, yes, to a degree, I I, I think there is. I, I've been I've been surprised at the at the level of of pretty hostile analysis that that the administration has put out against against Putin. I mean, to my mind, well deserved, but but surprising at the at the vituperativeness of it. Um, I also think, though, that what the administration picked up on in the run up to Ukraine was that that. This was going to be a this was going to be Putin's playbook, very much borrowed from the war in Chechnya uh, in the in the early two thousands. There was a, a massive, to my mind, a massive false flag operation that led to this to the second Chechen war, which was the apartment uh, the apartment building bombings uh, that really catapulted Putin to power in 1999. Let's just stop for a second and explain that. Uh, Putin arranged for a covert bombing of these apartment buildings and to blame it on the Chechens. That's right. That's right. I mean, I, I, I did a long uh, kind of investigation of, of, of the apartment building bombings in, in 1999 in Moscow and in a couple of other Russian cities. And to my mind, it's 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 almost incontrovertible that this was a FSB, the, the inheritor of the KGB uh, uh, operation, false flag operation, to blame it on the Chechens. The, the, the problem with the whole idea that it was the Chechens behind it is that the Chechens had no motive for doing so. They had, they had essentially uh, uh, independence. They had, they had beat the, the Russians in the first Chechen war. Um, but Putin had used Putin used this this the, the bombings and the the, the the sense of terror it unleashed across Russia to launch the second Chechen war and, and in that war he just launched a scorched earth campaign that that devastated Chechnya uh, to the to the great approval of the of the Russian people and that and it, it catapulted uh, Putin to supreme power and and Putin, but yet Putin's active measures campaign his hybrid warfare campaign against Ukraine seems to be falling flat. Right. Well, I think that, you know, I think the story of, of the Russian military is that it's, it's always been a, a second or third rate military. I, I think that, you know, this is one of the, 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 the kind of untold stories uh, of the last, of the last century or so. If you look all through um, Russian and Soviet history of the past hundred years, um, they have, you know, th their great victories against the Nazis in, in World War II, and they they did so by by just sheer numbers of, of men being thrown in, you know, in, into the meat grinder. Um, 17, 18 million Russian soldiers were Soviet soldiers were killed in World War II. Uh, the, in the first Chechen War, uh, you saw kind of a, a replay of what you're seeing now in in uh, or a precursor of what you're seeing now in Ukraine, where the, the Chechens kicked the hell out of them. Um, the, the Russians went in heedlessly. They sent in conscript soldiers who had no idea what they were doing there. Um, the, their, their machinery was obsolete. It broke down. There was the complete collapse of, of command leadership in the military, and they were slaughtered. Um, 
Putin compensated for that in the second Chechen war by just simply just carpet bombing the country and, and, and turning it into Chechen into rubble. Um, but th this is kind of the way of the Russian way of warfare is to take a sledgehammer to things. Uh, in last week's podcast, retired Brigadier General Kevin Ryan, uh, now at Harvard, told my podcast co-host Gene Meserve that a number the a number of, of tens of thousands of Russian draftees are going to have their enlistments end this spring. Um, there, there's an annual draft, mass national draft, and all men aged, I think, 18 to 28 can be called up or 27. Uh, and their enlistments are coming up and ending, and they're going to go home with some tales of woe from U Ukraine. So that, that's, that's the kind of worm eating in the, in the woodwork of the Russian army right now let me ask you this do you think that uh again your wonderful books the quiet americans uh describes how so many of these operations that during the cold war against russia ended in in abject failure and tragedy agents getting rounded up and killed uh captured broadcasting false messages back to their cia handlers and and so on do you think uh and and now the cia has gone through really tough times with iraq and afghanistan to put and syria to put it mildly do, do you think that it, it, it's gonna get through this uh it's gonna do the right thing with ukraine and and what is the right thing for cia to do from your vantage point yeah, that's, you know, it's a, it's a great question. I, this, this to me feels that events are moving so quickly uh, and so violently that I, I think that it's really, it really comes down to defense intelligence that it is really going to be leading the, 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 the show on this. Hmm. Um, I, you know, I, I wonder again, that going back to my original thought about you know, just what the CIA can do in a situation like this. What, what, what intelligence is there to actually glean when you have, a, when you have essentially a very small cabal of leadership or a, or a single, a single person who, who's, who's promoting this whole thing. I think what you're, what you mentioned earlier, Jeff, and, and I think you're going to see more of it is, is kind of the CIA disinformation campaigns, uh, you know, popular propaganda campaigns of, of, of trying to spread the word through, through Russia of, of, of the, the apparent incredible losses, that, uh, the, the, the casualty numbers that the Russian army has suffered, uh, to, try to, to try to build disenchantment with, you know, among the, the Russian people as much as possible. Um, and the uh, Russian uh, former uh, republics of the Soviet Union, um, CIA sources of mine have suggested that CIA is kind of, uh, well, I wouldn't say licking his chops, but are eyeing Uzbekistan and other Central Asian republics as places that we can sort of light a fire uh, and, and uh, divert Russian resources to keeping, trying to keep them in its camp. Right. I, I, I think that the the you know the long march on 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 this on this episode on, on the Ukrainian conflict is that it, this is going to be the most remarkable act of of imperial suicide uh, we've seen in in a hundred years. Uh, this I I don't really know what to quite compare it to. I think you have to go back to World War One of just 
of, of just such a self-destructive act. And this is going to, this is going to boom. Meaning, meaning the Romanovs uh, overseeing Russian yes. engagement in World War One, right. which and, was and so, a great precipitating factor in the Russian Revolution. Exactly, exactly. And and I think what you're going to, this is going to be wearing back on, on Putin and on Russia in so many ways, like economically, as you mentioned, uh, the stands, the, you know, the, 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 the kind of satellite nations that have, they broke away from the Soviet Union, but are still kind of, you know, on uh, the apron strings of Russia. They're going to start moving away. Certainly, the Baltic states. Uh, you know, this absolutely galvanizes uh, them uh, in their stand against against Russia. You're going to see Finland and Sweden probably join NATO. This is just a colossal, colossal disaster for for Russia. You see people in Washington calling for regime change, or whether we are pursuing regime change in Russia, uh, I suspect you think, as I do, that this is not necessarily going to be involving the CIA to much of a degree. This is really going to come through economic pressure uh, and, and so on. Uh, in fact, that great CIA engagement in some enterprise to overthrow uh, Putin, very, very dangerous, uh, maybe overreach and could end in disaster. Well, that's right. And you know, if you want to be really cold-blooded about it, um, <laughs> you could argue that this, the CIA or the American government has no incentive in, in, in pursuing regime change in Russia because, because Putin's committing suicide all by himself. Mm -hmm. um, so from a, from a real, from a standpoint of real politic, uh, you might want to keep Putin in there for, <laughs> for, for as long as possible. Uh, yeah, and you don't know. You got you got to watch what you wish for. Um, just because Putin goes that doesn't mean there's somebody better. Um, although uh, most scenarios we envision are of just uh, uh, you know uh, rival kleptocrats uh, reaching for power uh, or uh, third level uh, military or intelligence bureaucrats reaching for power. Right, and and, and I suppose that's a much better outcome than having the continued reign of this megalomaniacal ex-KGB officer. Right, right. Yeah, I, I mean, but you're right. You have to be careful what you wish for because, it, um, uh, you know, I'm reminded of the old, the old Russian joke of that, you know, the difference between a, a pessimist and an optimist. The pessimist says things are so terrible, nothing could possibly get worse. And the optimist says, oh, yes, they can. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it's hard to imagine a, a, a more dangerous leader than, than Vladimir Putin, but it's possible. <laughs> <laughs> uh, before we let you go, uh, Scott, tell us a little bit about the new book you're working on in regard to Iran. Yeah, I, I'm doing a book on uh, the Iranian revolution, the overthrow of the Shah uh, in 78 and 79, and um, taking very much a, a look at the, the, the internal dynamics of the, the kind of the three groups that were involved in that. The, of course, the, the Shah and the people around him, the people Khomeini and the people around him, and, and the people in the Carter administration who were, who were driving uh, Iran policy. Um, and it's, it's interesting to me that in, in really trying to explore the Shah's psyche, how much uh, I see I see shadows of Vladimir Putin in in uh, in the Shah's overthrow. In that, I think this is another case of 
a person who is inside an echo chamber. Uh, there's no reality check. There was no reality check on the Shah. He was surrounded by, by syncophants who told him what he wanted to hear. So when the revolution started, he was, he was like a deer in headlights. He didn't know what to do. Um, but he believed his own propaganda. And I think that that's clear that you see, you see shades of that with, with Putin today. Um, I called him Michael Jackson syndrome, which is, you know, you need, you need people around you to tell you when you're being a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> and if, if you don't have that, people can just kind of drift off into, into you know, outer space. And, and I, I, it's what happened to Shaw, and I think it's what's happened to Vladimir Putin. Um, you don't view the installation of the Shah in 1953 by the CIA and British intelligence. You don't look at that too kindly. I was expressing my dismay over the overthrow of the Shah and the installation of the theocratic uh, mullahs in uh, Iran. And I was expressing this to an ex-CIA officer in the early 1980s saying, look what we did in Iran. You know, we, we put the Shah in and look what happened. And he said, he was being sarcastic. He said, well, we got 25 years out of the shop. <laughs> so that's not so bad. Right. Yeah, I've, I've, I've heard I've heard CIA people say that <laughs> about the shot. Of course, yeah, when the when the bill came due and, and when you had Khomeini, you know, here we've been living with that bill now for over 40 years uh, in, in Iran. Um, so I'm, I'm not sure that the 25 years we had with them were, were worth the 40 years that came after. Are you following the U.S.-Iran talks at all over a nuclear uh, deal? I am a little bit, not too much. Um, I I feel that there's just a lot of of a lot of more uh, gymnastics to go on this, um, and I've, I'm having an, I'm having a hard enough time just trying to keep track of of Iran in 1977, 1978 mm -hmm. at the moment. <laughs> right, uh, but I know that you keep one eye on what's going on. Do you assess the Iranian Revolutionary National Guard and Quds Force as a much of a lethal threat to the United States? No, I don't. I don't. Um, I I think that I think that. Um, the Americans have, have uh, in, in certain administrations to, to a greater degree than others have, have, have kind of picked up Israel's, Israel's uh, lead on this to make, to make Iran seem a much more, much more dangerous and lethal force than it actually is. So do you see, going back to Europe right now, do you see this uh, conflict extending into the rest of Eastern Europe? Do you think, uh, do you see Putin picking up the speed of uh, his, uh, uh, his covert activities against Eastern Europe? And how would that play out? Covert activities, possibly. So I, I certainly don't see, I don't see militarily, uh, they're, they're going to have a hard enough time just, you know, grabbing the slice of Eastern Ukraine that they now seem to be willing to settle for. Um, I think that certainly, like in covert operations, no doubt that that the the Russians will continue to do, to try to destabilize and and make inroads into Eastern Europe. But I think the invasion of Ukraine has just has has shot that all to hell, and, and it's not it's not going to work. I mean, I it's going to be fascinating to see even you know Putin's Putin's allies like Orban in, in Hungary how they're going to have to back away from him. Uh, Poland's already done so to a, to a pretty remarkable degree. Um, 
I think that that Russia is going to be a pariah state uh, throughout that region, throughout Eastern Europe, for as long as Putin's in power. Yeah, the ground doesn't seem too fertile for Putin right now, to say the least. Whatever sympathy he had uh, in pockets of uh, Eastern Europe or even in Western Europe, like Marie Le Pen in France, who may well get elected um, uh, and bring her pro-Putin policies into play, which would be disastrous. I I suspect CIA has some interest in What's going on in France right now? <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure they do. Um, I, you know, the, the the one great weapon, of course, that Putin still has and, and will wield for some time is 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 uh, gas, the natural gas, and and that is what, if nothing else, that's what, what's going to allow him to continue to exert some uh, measure of coercion over Western Europe. Um, that they, they they can't they can't cut that off quickly enough. Uh, and of course, that, you know, that, the, the, that's causing inflation in France, which is helping drive Le Pen's um, uh, support up. Uh, this is a really, this is going to be a very tough time. The, the economic blowback for the, for the Western European governments is, is uh, it's just starting um, and it's going to continue for some time. So th- that is actually what I think maybe is, is, uh, the silver lining for Putin in all of this. It, ironically, it, it, it could be more in Western Europe than in Eastern Europe, where um, the economic damage that's done earns him some dividends. I want to run by you uh, as a last question, something that one of your main sources in your book, Peter Sitchell, said to you in, in looking back over the Cold War. He said, he told you, we were the good guys, and because we were the good guys, we didn't have to think much about the negative things we did along the way. I suspect this is the mindset of an intelligence, any intelligence officer. You're given your marching orders and you do what you're told to do. And we may be engaging some in some dirty tricks again, again, in that NATO faces an existential threat from Russia right now. And however he can cleave the unity of the alliance, uh, Putin's going to do it. So we're going to take any measure necessary to stop that from happening. Yes, that, that, I think that's right. And uh, you know, again, among the among the setbacks or disasters that I think Putin has brought on himself is he's he's massively strengthened NATO. Um, uh, certainly, that wasn't his <laughs> wasn't his intention. But I think that. You know, any any Latvian or Lithuanian Estonian military officer or politician is, is actually breathing much easier, sleeping much better now than they were two months ago, uh, because they they know that that uh, any sort of military incursion by by Russia is going to be met by the full force of NATO. I, I think the Biden administration has been very forceful in in, in reiterate reiterating that, um, and I think Putin has to know that that's that's the case that that. Um, his 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 destabilization efforts against against NATO uh, were working for quite some time, um, and he, he blew that up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it hasn't ended well for him so far. Um, we're facing great uncertainty with Putin saying he faces an existential threat, and he he may well be right. And someone with his back to the wall can do desperate things with weapons. So 
anyway, it's just great to have you on board, Scott Anderson. Thank Thanks so much for spending the time with us. And I have a feeling we'll be back talking to you again in the not too distant future. Thank you. Well, my pleasure, Jeff. Thank you for having me. Scott Anderson is a contributing writer for the New York Times Magazine, but his past work can be found in Vanity Fair, Esquire, Harper's, and Outside Magazines. Act of imperial suicide. We shall see. We shall see. And a reminder, this is an important broadcast. Do you know that, Jeff? This is our one-year anniversary broadcast. We have now been doing Spy Talk for 52 weeks. So it is. Time flies when you're having such a good time. And this, this has been mostly a good time. It's, it's certainly been a new venue for me doing a podcast. I, I've learned a lot with the help of Eugene, a longtime real pro in the broadcast industry. And our editor and engineer, Molly Hockey, has also been a great help and guide and putting together this show every week. Anyway, we put a lot of effort into it, and we hope it's worthwhile. We hope you find it good listening and hope, well, let's hope we'll all be around for another year of the Spy Talk podcast. In the meantime, leave us a review, subscribe. Also subscribe to, to Spy Talk on Substack. Follow us on Twitter and tune in next week for another episode. I'm Gene Meserve. I'm Jeff Stein. Thanks for listening. See you next week. For more original reporting and insights like this, subscribe to spytalk.co on Substack and follow us on Twitter at talk underscore spy. If you enjoyed our podcast, subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.